0: If you wanna go fast, go alone. But if you wanna go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by The Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once a month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received, is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the Impact Collaborative. Again, that's info at real leaders.com. Enjoy the show. Here we go now. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today, folks, is the CEO of One Energy. Please welcome. Mr. Jeremy Kent. Jeremy, thanks nice for being with us today, my friend. Kevin, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I want to get into this concept. Let's just go right into what, you know, Utility 2.0. If, if uh, you know, I was speaking with someone the other day, Jeremy, and they were saying, you know, if you were to rebuild the energy grid, would you do it the same way? And the is probably no. So, so tell, our, tell our audience a little bit about what Utility 2.0 is and the overall vision of One Energy.
1: Thanks, Kevin. I think that's probably the best lead up I've had in a while. Um, You know, to answer that very simple question of would you rebuild it the way it is right now is hell no. Um, The way the power grid is designed makes absolutely no sense in the modern day, Hmm. unless you understand the history of how it came to be. And that history tends to get lost and we tend to not understand what the power grid was built for and how we got where we are. But um, it's one of the, the classic problems of modern civilization of when you have a old piece of crap that's always been that way um that it's really hard to rethink and start over and realize it doesn't have to be a piece of crap so um our company or my company one energy focuses on how large industrial customers are doing that how big factories are figuring out how to take back their power grid and how they get the power grid they really want the utility 2.0 version Um, but we think it's a trend that needs to spread broadly across all the customer classes across all the states um, and, you know, and, and the absolute uh, nightmare of current utilities today. So let's let's paint the picture. I, I tend to hold back in case that's not obvious, Kevin.
0: <laughs> no, uh, please do not hold back. Uh, we want to paint the picture here, Jeremy, for the layman out there yep. like myself, who, who don't really know where the energy comes from, don't really know how it's made, the effect that it has on the environment and so forth. Tell us a little bit about the picture. What does it currently look like and how are you aiming to disrupt it?
1: Yeah, so if you go back to the, when the power grid that we know today really got going, right? There was generation that existed and that generation existed mostly in large factories. So, you know, think big paper mills and big things that were, big steel mills back around the turn of the century. Um, And then other big power users next to them and they kind of connected the, the big factories so they had backup together. And then these utilities came in and started saying, hey, what if we took over? What if we took all the generation? That used to be in each factory and we put it all in one big spot we started building big coal plants big oil plants and then you know now these plants were a hundred times or a thousand times the size they were in one big location and now they had to move the power and back then in the sophisticated culture of the uh the horse-drawn carriage era what they came up with was the easiest thing to do was cut down trees that were relatively straight um basically treat the wood a little bit stick the wooden poles in the ground uh, stick some wooden cross members on them and then take back then some glass insulators and then string cable across. Them. And that was an amazing idea in 1925. Right. When they set the original power grid systems with horse drawn carriages and, you know, guys with wooden poles and sticks. Um, what's amazing is that now in 2022, the current plan is to take wooden poles, to stick them in the ground, to put wooden cross arms on them and occasionally use something slightly better than glass but the same shape, same concept, and then string wires across. them, And so, um, you know, it's almost impossible to see any real level of innovation in that industry in the last hundred years. And so the reason if you live in California, which you said you're in San Diego, Kevin, right, that you might have rolling blackouts this summer is because the power grid's overstressed. They haven't figured out how to decentralize power. They haven't figured out how to move power efficiently. And in many cases, they're still relying on wooden poles in the ground. Um, And or in some cases, even they're relying on, you know, 50-year-old steel structures that they haven't inspected for real or or taken care of in 50 years. So the end result is that you have a power grid that doesn't have the predictability, stability, um, and doesn't do a good job moving power around. Uh, And that creates the problem that we find ourselves in today of, You know, we can't trust the monopolies, right? You don't have a choice of who you buy your power from, right? There's only one utility allowed to serve you by law. And by law, no matter how crappy of a job they do, they're guaranteed a profit. That's a business model I'd love to have, but no one in their right mind should give out anymore. So um, that's what creates the opportunity to think about how it should be going forward and how big customers are getting pretty pissed off at that model and figuring out how to, you know, take control of it
0: themselves. Maybe the reason it looks the same is because it's so difficult to penetrate, right? With the monopoly and the powers that they have, the funding that they have, incredibly, incredibly difficult to penetrate and disrupt an industry that's been around for so long. So you just painted the picture for what it currently looks like. What is the dream that you envision?
1: Yeah, I think it's worth even expanding upon what you just said, Kevin. In many cases, it's almost criminal to penetrate the market because they have laws written to protect themselves from any reasonable competition. Um, and so the loophole, quote unquote, to that, or the way that we found a business model is that there are a number of things you can do behind the meter. By that, I mean, on the customer side of the utility interface. So for a large factory, right, that maybe use, uses enough power for three or 4,000 normal homes, you know, for the minute they take the power at that meter from the utility, the entire rest of that is theirs. And they're allowed to do a whole lot more things there. So we show up and do things like put large wind turbines on site to make a significant amount of their energy from renewable energy on site at a 20-year fixed rate. We do things like how do you rebuild a power system for them? How do you fix power quality issues? Um, you know, I, I love the I love talking about stuff that utilities do that I'm convinced are in cahoots with all of the like uh, factory equipment manufacturers just to break as much crap as possible every time there's a problem. So there's this thing called a recloser cycle. So if you've ever seen the power go out, oftentimes what you see is it goes out, it flickers, it goes out, it flickers, it goes out, right? So you get that boom, boom, boom of of the lights going off and on for a second and it stays off. It's called a recloser cycle. Hmm. And, you know, back in like 1950, that was a really cool thing that helped utilities automatically come back online after it like shocked a squirrel or something, right? So it would try try to turn back on, try to turn back on. In modern days for factories that have state-of-the-art equipment running on mile long conveyor lines, when you turn some stuff off and on and off and on over and over really quick, it breaks all kinds of crap in there. Hmm. And so even just that that customer saying, how do I not let the utility just literally damage my stuff intentionally when it has a problem instead of realizing that's a bad thing? Um, You can do all kinds of stuff to improve the quality of power, to improve the pricing of power, to improve on-site resiliency, lower carbon emissions, You can do all of those things for a large industrial. And the reason we focus on large industrials is that there are 53,000 large industrial facilities in the United States. That represents only 0.6% of the total energy users, but they use 26% of the energy. Hmm. So 0.6% of the users use 26% of the energy in this country. And so if you wanted to go, oh, I don't know, screw with utilities, break their business model and try to build utility 2.0,
0: start where the most concentrated usage is and that's what we've done very interesting approach now now where's this approach come from i mean you have a background in construction tell us about the origin of this idea um where did it spawn from uh
1: i think you know like all good stories kevin i was drunk at a bar um so i was in in the middle of northern minnesota in sub-zero degree weather uh helping build some wind turbines up there um, and the bartender came up to me and said, are you with the wind farm company? And I said, yes, I am. Like, what did my guys do? Cause the usual next thing the bartender said was, here's what the problem was. And his response was, well, you know, I just want to know how I can get a wind turbine for this hotel. I said, why do you care? <clears throat> and he goes, well, I own the hotel. And I said, you know, I've never actually tried to figure this out before and I'm just bored enough. I'll go figure it out for you. And so I spent the next several weeks learning how to put a small wind turbine up for him and writing a nice little report that ironically, ultimately concluded he definitely shouldn't do it because his cost of power was way too low. But I realized there was an entire market for doing wind energy on site, right? We've all heard of doing solar on your roof or in your house, or, you know, the massive amount of solar penetration into residential homes, but you don't hear about it with wind and largely that's because it's hard to be cost-effective with wind at small scale, but we realized we could do it at big scale. And so, you know, fast forward nine or 10 years later, and we become the largest installer behind the meter wind in the country. Uh, And what we've found is that our customers are enjoying taking back control, right? Um, Our customers are pissed at the utilities, and that's a great thing for us because we do our best to help them give the middle finger back to utilities and to say, what can we do to take control for you? So that's what then drove this manage high voltage trend where we're looking at how to do on-site net zero projects for major factories. We're looking at doing state-of-the-art power systems. You know, everything from adding, um, you know, power quality instrumentation to safety and protection, to reliability, to storage, all the stuff that these customers want, and as bad as the power grid is doing, we're finding out that we're actually able to do it cheaper behind the meter than the power grid can deliver it. You know, the irony of my business model, Kevin, is that it shouldn't work. If utilities actually innovated for the last hundred years, worked hard at what they were doing, cared about the customer, you know, still got their guaranteed profit, but just actually tried a little bit, they should kick my butt but they couldn't care less and they suck at their job and the end result is that it's a massive you know place to go into if you're willing to have the nasty fights you have to have to get there
0: right right interesting okay so let me just set this you know the scene for us if i'm a factory a large factory the 26 percent that cons- of of energy that's consumed and i'm getting screwed by utility companies or at least i'm just kind of fed up uh, they're raising the prices on me or the blackouts they're happening because of the surges mm-hmm. That's just screwing up my businesses. And I just want to de-risk that from ever happening to me in the long term. I could go behind the meter and supplement my energy costs by working with you and you are going to come in. You're going to put those wind turbines at a, a sizable amount of wind turbines in my local area. And over a span of 15 to 20 years, I'm going to basically pay that off. So
1: it's even better than that is that usually we're going to finance it for you. So you never pay for it. You just start paying less on day one. Um, The other big difference is that we don't just go in the local area. We're almost always actually on site. So we're, you know, on the land that you own or land right next to you, because in most States we have to be contiguous to your property. I can't be a few miles away. Um, But yeah, the, the, the phrase we love is do you know the price of power in 20 years? And so when we finance the deals, we give our customers a fixed rate for 20 years. So I don't know how much you're following the power markets in the last two months and natural gas prices at Henry Hub, like all of us cool kids do. But, you know, the, the, the price of natural gas at Henry Hub, which tends to be the national benchmark, is, you know, the third highest it's been since they kept track of it. Going back, you know, before 2002, I think it was 1992 is when I started looking at that. Um, and there have been two peaks that were spiked higher than that. And other than that, this is the highest price. This is the energy crisis of our lifetime. Um, A year ago, natural gas was sub $4. Now it's, you know, above eight hitting nine. And the reason that's super important for energy is that in the last 10 years, most of these utilities in their infinite wisdom have converted to almost, you know, to to massive amounts of natural gas to replace coal. And so they just took, you know, 20 plus percent of the supply and converted it to natural gas. Hmm. And now the price of natural gas doubled or tripled. And now everybody gets to pay for it. And the utilities still make money because they're still guaranteed their profit now on more money. Mm. And so the whole system just, you know, doesn't make any sense. Um, and so it's all about why that customer wants to take that rate and lock it in. So, you know, it, when all this price spikes happened, I have no mechanism in my contracts to go back and change the price that Whirlpool pays that ball corporation pays they locked in their rate, you know, five years ago with us, and it'll be the same for the next 20 years. Right. And so it's a massive protection against just the ridiculousness of the market.
0: Interesting, interesting. And so, and you've seen over time that the cost of production, the cost of capital has, has lowered, is that accurate?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, okay. When we first tried to finance behind the meter wind, I mean, let me say I was completely unsuccessful because everybody thought we were nuts. Um, by the time we got someone to eventually say they would finance behind the meter wind, we were talking about 12, 13% interest rates. Um, we're now getting all in interest rates, you know, sub 4% um and so we've moved that cost of capital as we've gotten big enough have proof of concept have jobs been running for you know coming up on 10 years now as we've gotten institutions to see this as an option um and then right now with the fact that the solar market's completely screwed um all of a sudden we're seeing that everybody's looking for renewable investments to do
0: and we're all of a sudden the hot chick of the dance yeah incredible i was gonna ask about that is like what trends have you seen that that led to this i mean we have the the green infrastructure bill that was you know, recently passed you know there's a little term out there called the carbon tax that's kind of floating around as well i mean what are some of the mega trends i guess the the wind uh sales that are kind of spurring this this new trend to adopt or i guess de-risk uh clean energy yeah so it's despite all
1: of the incentives i think the the two biggest drivers are that utilities keep doing a horrible job at lowering their costs And you're seeing, you know, kind of wild market forces in power pricing due to natural gas pricing and things. Um, and then there's a bunch of all the other stuff, little stuff, right? Like sec reporting and move to ESG and the consumers wanting, yeah, yeah, that's great. But when you're thinking about a, you know, billion dollar factory, you have to think about the bottom line first and you know, you have to risk weight that when you add the risk of the market and the fact that even I love watching the price of power. Uh, on a graph, if you look at like the wholesale price of power versus the retail price. So the wholesale price is what the utility pays at that generator. And the retail price is what you, the end consumer or the factory pays. For most of the last decade, the wholesale price has come down, 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 down. And they kept talking about lower cost of natural gas. And that number, you know, that number fallen by 50%. Yet somehow in that time, you've still seen retail prices creep up. So the entire job of utilities is to take energy from where it's made, deliver it to you. The energy now costs half as much and it still costs more to get it to you,
0: Mm.
1: right? It just, it's not how the market's supposed to work. And now that you're seeing the wholesale pricing go up, you're seeing retail pricing skyrocket. And so, you know, it's a market begging for disruption. It's a market where hopefully, you know, the the scandals, the failures, I mean, I, I don't know what else utilities could do to screw up more. In California, they're like, Golly gee, it's going to be a windy weekend. Let's just turn off power just in case. Cause our shit might light on fire, on fire, right. And start another fire and kill a bunch of people, right? How is that the modern power grid? Mm. So it's, um, it, it's a system begging for disruption and the only thing stopping disruption is a whole bunch of lobbyists and a whole bunch of donations and a whole bunch of, uh, existing laws on the books that need
0: to be blown up. Right. You know, and, and this is you know, an immense responsibility and no one's taken accountability for something like that. We'll talk about your lessons from a leadership perspective, as you all have been able mm-hmm. to grow and, and hire more employees. Um, how have you managed the responsibility? Uh, tell me about this growth process.
1: Yeah, so I guess I was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough, depending on how you look at it, to have a um, interesting career in utility scale win before I started this company. Um, I worked on some of the largest projects in the world. I ran some of the largest projects in the world. Um, but I saw just absolutely horrendous safety and quality culture. Um, I had one company that when I was learning to tighten bolts in these towers and these bolts are like two inch diameter bolts that weigh 20 pounds and are you know, a foot and a half long. Um, and so you, when you tighten all these bolts, there'll be a hundred plus on a flange. You're supposed to go back with a separate tool and check every 10% of them to make sure the quality's there, right? To make sure that everything went right with your tool. So if you tighten hundred bolts, you go spot check 10 when you're all done. The way I was taught uh, originally to do a 10% check was every 10th bolt, just put the extra mark on it, keep moving because it's faster, right? We, we had, um, I was on one site where um, someone got injured, um, I had been an EMT previously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was also a field engineer on the site. Mm-hmm. I responded to it. I intervened, I helped put that person on a medevac. Um, and then the company showed up and said, they thought I did too much and I should just wait for help to get there. Right. Cause they thought it exposed them to liability. And they actually, one company sent their, the, one of the corporate counsel down to come talk to me and explain to me why I shouldn't help. And I said, I understand your kid works for me. If his leg was just crushed by a car how long would you like me to wait right. right and but but that was the culture and it was about paperwork safety and paperwork quality hmm. um and so when I sat down to start the company I wrote a list of you know 10 promises to myself and we've changed the name of that list a few times um you know at one point it was our promise to our customers or it was the new standard we kind of tweaked that a little bit but the actual things have never changed right it's safety and quality are always first you know never you know um, be professors not salesmen uh, make our customers smarter than the competition's expert, make decisions for the long term. But essentially I wrote down a list of rules and said, if I'm going to run this company and I'm going to put my name on it and I'm going to go put everything I've got into doing this, here are the 10 promises. And that's kind of been the guiding star as we've worked through the last you know, 12 years, good, bad, really bad, really good. Uh, that's how we got to where we are today. And that's how we created the culture we have today.
0: It, it, and your utility just inherently is decentralized. When you think about leadership in your organization and empowering others, is that how you are? I guess training leaders in your organization. Are you working with them with these core values? Are you kind of you know, reinstilling instilling it on each meeting? Tell me a little bit about like your your leadership style.
1: Yeah. So we we talk a lot about corporate values, how the company makes decisions and individual values how we expect individuals to make decisions but um, what we've also realized is that we have to be ready for the unknown because most of what we do hasn't been done and so we train for the unknown problem Um, and so it's actually a question when we interview people one of the questions all the reviewers have to fill out is would you want this person on your team for the unknown problem and the concept behind that is Mm -hmm. you know you're about to be given a problem it's on the other side of that door you have no idea what's on the other side of that door it could be everything from bake a cake to cure cancer to solve nuclear fusion to you know whatever else pick who you want on your team without knowing the problem Mm -hmm. and that's an interesting question when you really think about it because you start going well okay like i want diversity i want different points of views i want different skill sets but i want all of them to also have diverse points of views and different skill sets and so we try to train and teach and educate for the unknown problem. We spend an obscene amount of money on training for people. Um, you know, w- One of the things we did to promote safety culture is that um, more than half of the company that I have of you 50 know, something people now um, are EMTs. So we actually became a licensed EMT training facility in the state of Ohio, just so that we could put our own people through an EMT course, just so that they were trained in case of emergency, how to react. And the irony is what, what that's done is most of those people who've now gone through that 130 hours of training and certification that are certified as EMTs. know they just really don't want to have to deal with the safety accident. Hmm. So they tend to be safer, hmm. right? If you start actually training people to the highest standards actually possible, you find that when that unknown problem comes up and they're in the field and no one from management's around, they're able to make good decisions. And so, you know, it's not easy. It's not just make good decisions. It's we're going to give you all the training, all the context, all the opportunity, all the different exposures, so that when you have to make that good decision, you're you're as equipped as we can make you.
0: That's very interesting, very innovative. You know, that that tends to be a trend with most successful organizations. You know, you run into an obstacle, you got to innovate a way around it or through it, right? Question for you is, and when you when you talk about the unknowns, Jeremy. Tell me about a time where your leadership was was most tested um you
1: know i think we've had a lot of successes but we've had some interesting you know failures we um at one point a few years back ran into a financing problem um and without going into all of the details um you know we we bring large amounts of capital in to do what we do because each wind turbine costs three to four million dollars a piece. Um, and we had some capital that started to go bad and have trouble. And then we went to go take it out. Um, the party who was supposed to take it out and, you know, bring 30 plus million dollars into the company, um, didn't show up on closing day.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, and we all of a sudden were a company that was in a position where we couldn't cut checks. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't make payroll the next week. Um, we went from being how fast can you go to um completely out over our skis and doing everything we could to not go bankrupt um and i had to pull the entire team in and tell them that you know i i had screwed up and that we had lost control and i had been keeping them informed throughout the whole thing but you know we we ended up having to lay off almost two-thirds of our workforce Um, we had to figure out how to do that with dignity and let them know you know, how valued they were. We wrote, helped them write resumes for their next jobs. We made phone calls to try to help them find the right job. We let them come in, you know, take corporate headshots or do whatever else they could to try to find the next best thing while we figured out how to save the company. And, you know, ultimately, we were able to save the company. We were able to turn it around. We got financing back in place. We were able to restructure. We never ended up filing for bankruptcy. Um, you know, I people talk about kind of going over the cliff. We were well over the cliff. We just had enough rope and we were able to climb back up. Mm. Um, and, you know, years later, that's behind us and we're back bigger than we were then. Um, but, you know, I, I keep an article from the local paper of, you know, energy lays off two thirds of its staff, you know, taped above my desk uh, to remind myself that I don't ever want to be there again. Mm. And so, you know, you have to understand and learn from your failures. Um, and be able to take those and be stronger in the long run.
0: It, it seems like you, you definitely have a learning mindset because that has turned into a positive in some way, shape, or form for you. What, what would you say would be the biggest lesson from that experience? Is it the accountability? Is it the ownership? Is it the transparency? What has been the, the biggest lesson for you that now you're able to apply uh, for more growth?
1: If you want your team's help, on the day you arrive at the unknown problem you have to trust them and give them all the same information and context you have i mean the very next day when you know the 14 or 15 or many people showed up at the office i said none of you need to be here i can't pay you and every single one of them stayed and it took me four weeks before i figured out was able even able to pay them let alone you know have a plan going forward and the reason they were willing to do that is they believed in what we were doing they had all the information and they were willing to take that bet. But, you know, you uh, you learn a lot about what kind of, you know, leader or manager or, you know, teammate you've been the day that you have nothing to give and you ask for help.
0: Yeah, the bigger the dreams, uh, sometimes comes like more stress. Like, just out of curiosity, like w- with all these big dreams, what's what's keeping you up at night?
1: Have you been talking to my cardiologist, Kevin? Maybe. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> cardiologist. <you know>, I- <laughs>
1: Stress, what are you talking about? Um, you know, I, I sleep fine at night, um, but it's because the days are long and hard. Um, and we come in and we work really hard every day. And I work some kind of ridiculous hours and we've been working on getting better at, you know, work-life harmony. I think anybody who thinks an entrepreneur actually knows what work-life balance is, is kind of never met a real entrepreneur, but, you know, at least work-life harmony and maintaining sanity is important. Um, but, you know, the, the real game now is how... How, given the fact that every tailwind that has been a headwind previously is creating opportunity for us, you know, everything we were fighting of super low power pricing around the grid, you know, utilities have power, solar's flooding the market, um, you know, super low natural gas pricing, all of that's gone. All that's now the exact opposite. So how do we not take this tremendous opportunity in front of us and not screw it up while we grow, you know, 4, 10, 50x?
0: I'm curious to know about a little bit more about kind of like the lifestyle of the entrepreneur lifestyle. I see you're in your factory there. Um, I mean, are you are you sleeping in the factory? Are you close by to it? How are, how are you uh, increasing efficiency with your time? Uh,
1: no, I would never sleep in the, in, in the office. I, uh, I sleep like at the house next door to the office that I bought. Um, so our office happens to be right next to 10 of our wind turbines. And one of the questions I always get asked is, you know, w- would you want to live next to the wind turbines in public meetings? And so the house next to us, uh, went up for sale and I called him and said, just so we're clear, I'm your only buyer and immediately <laughs> bought the house right next to the office. Yes. So, you know, the, uh, walk to work is not difficult at all. Um, but you know, I, I tend to get up at three 30 or four in the morning. I tend to be in the office by four 30, um, construction team usually starts getting here a little bit before six normal, you know, uh office teams here at 8 um tend to work till 5 or 6 and then uh usually after that a couple nights a week i'm doing either dinner with a coworker or something else to to find some time to focus on some you know growth areas um but it's a long light you know it's a long days and that's the fun part right we um we're doing stuff no one's ever done before and i'm watching people who come out of college you know with you know who are highly intelligent but uh, have no idea utility two is a concept who, you know, a year later are designing, you know, some of the largest substations in the world, right? I mean, watching some of these people, you know, grow and see what they can do as we tackle the unknown problem and seeing um, how they grow together and what they're doing that I don't even know about anymore. Um, You know, that's what makes the lifestyle worth it. And then, you know, try to play very hard when I can play and um, get as far away from technology as possible
0: go into that, expand on that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Are you, are you going away? No phones? Yeah. Are you going to like a random so, place? Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So I, I found that about the only two things where I can actually clear my head because I'm a little bit stubborn um, are backpacking or scuba diving, you know, under the water. Right. So, mm. you know, backpacking, I tend to be remote enough that, you know, on, on a, in some cases, there may be a sat phone to check in once every day or two days. Nice. Um, but it beyond that, I have no email, no service. I'm, you know, 70 miles from a cell phone tower and, that that's a really good thing and you kind of have to be more in harmony with nature and just chill out and not be in control um and then you know anything about 60 feet below the water and you know diving with sharks or manta rays or whatever else you're diving with that gives you a chance to just decompress and realize there's a whole bigger world and as much as your problems are overwhelming you know mm-hmm. there are bigger things we still don't understand to get to later on mm-hmm. so um you know and it's really hard to take a cell phone you know scuba dive and i haven't quite figured that one out yet so I'm hoping nobody works on that technology,
0: and it's just never possible. Interesting. So you you may like the silence down there in the scuba, nothing around as well. It's probably pretty relaxing for you.
1: Yeah, I do enjoy
0: uh, the fact that everybody just shuts up and you to listen to fish. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, thanks for sharing that, Jeremy. You now I'm curious because you know the story that you have is very unique. You know, you you come from you know blue collar roots as construction worker. And just, you know, in that hotel bar, did you ever consider yourself having an entrepreneurial type mindset? I mean, I'm sure you were a great hard worker, but did you ever think that, you know, you'd you'd go the the path that you did?
1: Yeah, so um, I guess when I started the company, my friend's mother, who was a lawyer I knew, said, well, it's about damn time you're never going to work for anybody else for long um you know I, I started my first company when i was 15 doing private lifeguarding and swim lessons and i'd ride my bike all around palace verdes doing you know private swim lessons because well-off parents realized it was much nicer to have the swim instructor show up at their house and have to take them their kids downtown and uh ended up starting a tutoring company um and then kind of had a few other you know odd jobs and businesses yeah. um, before i got into big wind um, you know, the, the part that was nice about big wind that I could not have made up um, if I had tried was that I got it at the right time, right? The, the utility scale wind industry was maybe two years old if that when I got into it. Um, and so every new job was the biggest job. Every new job was a new problem. It was new scale. And so I got to walk in with a fresh mind out of college looking at it going, okay, let, let me figure out how to do this as wind, not comparing it to any other industry. So everybody else who got in the industry and kind of got chewed up are the guys who came from a different industry. Well, I've been building chimneys. Okay. Chimney's not a wind turbine, buddy. Well, in the chimney business, we, you know, well, in the power business, we, and I just sat there going, look, I, I don't know any of those businesses. I just know wind and the problem in front of us. So I'm just going to solve this problem and not tell you how it was in the last place. Um, and that's kind of where the, the framing for the unknown problem came from is if you, Realize that that was a problem that hadn't really been solved at scale yet for how do you know, build three turbines a day with 900 people? Um, it, it's a whole different you know environment to think about, and unlike anything else. And that's the fun part, and that's what we need a whole lot more of to make you know all of this future possible.
0: A lot of entrepreneurs at the very beginning, you know, they struggle with gaining the capital more so because it's of credibility, right? If, if anything, people are entrusting money uh, with a young primarily maybe a young individual, uh, how did you get over that hump and, and who were some of the sources that you went to first to, to get experience, build the credibility, and then really uh, prove the scalability, the, scal- the scalable concepts?
1: You know, they, they always talk about friends, family, and fools. And, and we did some of that originally and you know, people I had worked with, people I knew. Um, but the first real round came from when I was talking to a venture capital firm and I went to talk to one of my existing customers who we had just built three turbines for. And I said, Hey, you know, we, I, I could use a reference if you don't mind with this venture capital firm, they're talking about, you know, working with us for a couple million dollars. Um, would you mind being a reference? And the, the investor kind of sits there and goes, sure, no problem. He goes, what are you asking for? And I was like, well, you know, I think at the time it was $2 million. He goes, what are you going to do with it? And I was like, well, here's my plans and kind of laid it out. And he goes, what if I just gave you the $2 million? And I kind of was like, you do investments? Do you want to do that? I was like, what do you want for it? He goes, I don't know. What's fair, by the way, if you've ever worked with a venture capital firm, what's fair is not a question they ask you back when they're talking about what to get. Um, And and so he ironically um, ended up saying, I was like, look, like, do you need due diligence on us? He goes, due diligence? I just watched you build three turbines at my factory. He goes, that was due diligence, right? I've I've watched you work. I've seen what you've done. I've seen that you operate safely. I've seen you do, you know, do this on time, on Mm -hmm. budget you know, that was the interview. I don't need more of an interview. Mm-hmm. And so, um, he ran a family office on the side and he became an investor who stayed with us to this day. Um, at different points, he brought some other family offices, some other institutional capital, but, um, we're in a weird paradigm in that wind finance in the utility scale space is considered so boring and so big that, only some very big players do it and they do it at super low margins. And it's just wind's going to work. And, you know, low cost of capital means everybody just trusts it's going to work. Except we said, we're going to take those exact same wind turbines, exact same quality of team, right? I, I built the biggest wind farm in the world at one point, right? I'm the guy you were financing last time, you know, through the contractor. And now I'm just going to build two of them for a factory behind the meter. Right? And everybody goes, whoa, hold on, hold on. How do you know that works? Right? you're like, hold on, like, we're cool with wind works. Like, well, wind works on a big project. You're like, do we think it works less one at a time? And, and so we had to take an industry that was so set on, here's the way you do big wind projects and say, now here's how you finance smaller distributed wind projects, sometimes for customers with much better credit ratings, but still, um, just that tweak of where it goes and the legal structure around interconnecting behind the meter. Basically excluded ninety nine percent of the market. I mean, I think you know we 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 keep track, unfortunately, of how many people we've talked to about different corporate and project capital raises, and that number is in like the five hundred plus number, right? Now the five hundred knows, you know, there've been five or six yeses. Now that's all you need, mm. um, but you get to hear no a whole lot of times when you're actually innovating, and you're actually, you know, when you really are unique and one of a kind, uh, it means that there's no one else who's done it before you, so you get to invent everything. So I always joke that two energy would be much easier because uh, I just get to say that we did, we're, we're like one energy. And everybody we go, oh, okay, that works. Um, but one energy is a, a challenging model.
0: It was such a big dream. Obviously, it's not going to get built overnight. Um, the quote goes, you know, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go with the group. Who are some of the key hires and people that you need to bring on to make sure that you can sustain this vision?
1: You know, we had a couple of challenges. One, we had to figure out how to safely run construction without me being part of it. Right. And so, you know, I, when I, when I define safe, you know, I, I imagine your loved one, your brother, your sister, you know, your wife, your, your somebody that matters to you, imagine that they're going to come work for my construction team. Right. And you want to be completely comfortable. They're safe. No, like, oh yeah, Bobby's crazy, but he'll be fine over there. The one that you go like, take care of him. Don't, don't create undue risk go do dangerous stuff safely. Um, and having that culture where it wasn't a, we'll see how tough we are. Um, that was a very difficult hire. And ironically the the person we brought in for that, who, you know, we grew internally and now runs the entire group, um, has a very different style than I do. Um, she leads in a way that frankly drives me absolutely crazy. Sure. Right. I, I, I'll tell her I you drive me crazy, but I'd work for you in a second. And I let anybody I care for work for you. Um, and so, saying what's important understanding that other people can do it a different way is important um i think finding an attorney uh, or a regulatory attorney and by the way regulatory attorneys are like the most boring people in the world right like they're the ones the accountants think are not cool um <clears throat> finding one who was willing to go blow up the entire model pick a fight and that could do so well that you know utilities would be terrified of that of you know coming across that person oh crap you know if i'm fighting katie I don't want to screw with her like she doesn't pick fights she can't win Hmm. right and so bringing that in to realize that one of the big barriers to all this like we were talking about earlier is the laws the entire system stacked against you so having somebody willing to go take on those laws challenge utilities say if we have to you know have this fight we're going to have this fight and not just get intimidated because that's you know tactic number one for them it's bury you in paperwork um you know and then figuring out how do we scale um, developing a project and doing that faster and faster and built, you know, system. So right now, if you wanted to go do your own wind project, right. And you have all the money and you have a factory, you'd go out and you'd hire five to 10 different consultants, contractors, engineering firms to do that. Figuring out how to bring all that into one roof and then to actually write a methodology that was standardized and published, right. We, the wind industry is one of the industries that like, doesn't tell anybody anything else. It's a bunch of secrets people won't share the wind data. You know, if they put up a Met Tower and the guy next to him goes, hey, can I get that data so I can do a better job? And no, that's our data, super secret. We're yes, like huh. all of our shit's online. Right. Like we'll publish it all online. We'll show you all of our methods. We bought a software company, improved the software, did the next version of it and then put it out open source just to say our software is open source. You know, please send me your software so I know what it's doing. Um, and so trying to create a culture of transparency in an industry that has zero interest in transparency Um, you know, and then be able to finance based on the results of that. Right. We, we had to figure out how to do that too. And so, you know, solving those three problems really were the big
0: three that led to all the other eventual problems for growth. Well, I mean, there's something exciting about that, right? I mean, if I'm looking to come work for an organization Mm -hmm. like yours, it's innovative, it's disruptive, it's exciting. Of course, every day, you know, I get to fight the unknown, right? Mm -hmm. Have you seen this, this culture? Develop the way that you intended it to. Uh, have you brought on been able to bring on more? Um, I guess high level, more talented uh, workers because of green energy, clean renewables with the new generation, plus this new innovation dis- disrupting this, and also not to mention it's in Findlay, in Ohio. I mean, no, no disrespect, but I mean that's not mm-hmm. the most attractive place for somebody what you don't enjoy the hills actually, i haven't Bentley, been Ohio? so i can't say that actually but haven't yeah. it's okay
1: there, there's no hills it's good you, you characterized it perfectly uh it's a lovely micropolitan and as we like to say it's a great place to raise a family which means your kids can't get in trouble um so you know the to answer that question i would say that the overall 10 points right that I, we talked about early on about the you know, the 10 promises to myself it, those haven't changed how we've gotten there what that looks like how we're implementing all of that absolutely has changed i mean um you know we one of our departments um the the leader of that department's very into harry potter and it's kind of always a joke and she started giving out like you know, sorting her team into houses and then giving points out and like having a house cup at the end of the year um, and I'm like, you're, you've got to be kidding me, right? Like I'm, I'm used to running jobs with, you know, 900 people who don't care. And I mean, people get upset if Gryffindor gets 15 points, right? They get motivated by that. And they've, they've found like an internal competitive style that gets them that where they're striving for perfection and they get boarded house points. I still don't know what a house point is, but I know that, you know, that culture and the way that that team has learned to interact delivers on the 10 promises. And so, you know, every culture or every kind of team in here has found their own way of doing that and supporting the broader you know the broader way the company should think and behave um but no it's not in any way how i would ever
0: expect it's interesting because you know it's what we hear you know pe- people people want to work and i love like that whole thinking uh the gryffindor uh the, the boss that you know you drives you crazy but you know you trust her and also the vc lender that you mm-hmm. say hey look um do you what do you want with this two million dollars because he's seen you work before he, he trusts who you are. How do you build trust in an organization? Big question, but what is the key to building trust in an organization?
1: You build trust during the good times and you demonstrate it during the bad times, right? You know, when, when things are tough, do you all of a sudden stop being less candid? Do you stop being less composed? Do you stop reacting? Do you stop being as transparent? Do you hide things that no one could possibly know about? Right, and everybody sees that. Um, I saw it in Big Wind. Right, and they're all, you know, we're the company that's for safety, for safety, for safety. And then all of a sudden, it was going to cost them some money. And like, well, you know, we got to make business decisions, right? And everybody sees that in the company. So um, sticking to those values that you talk about in the good times, in the bad times, um, is how you build trust. It's how people, you know, will go out there with you at two o'clock in the morning to you know, turn a plant back on after there's been an explosion on the power line and you're trying to figure it out for the factory to get back online. Right. You know, it's, it's why plant managers trust us. It's why the, the customers that we work with trust us with their power. Um, you know, that's not an easy thing, right? This isn't, this can't be the, you know, VC tech startup, look at our super cool widget. Right. But like, don't call us at two in the morning when shit blew up. Mm. Right. At two in the morning, we'll have a team sitting there next to the plant manager going, how can we help? What do you need? right? How do we, how do we get you back online? Even if it's not our, our fault. And that's how you build trust with your customers, right? You, you be there at the time that, um, they don't deserve you being there by any contract. It's just that you're a good company to work with.
0: I love that. The mindset the stakeholder trust building process as an operating system, almost now Jeremy, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? You know, so I, I've,
1: listened to a few of your podcasts this morning, Kevin, and realized that like, that was actually a relatively complicated question. I was trying to find a simple and elegant answer for, um, you know, I, I think real leadership is about helping people being uncomfortable. And so I would say that real leaders inspire people to do uncomfortable things because uncomfortable things are the things that result in change in the world.
0: For Jeremy Ken, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, inspire people to do uncomfortable things. And always folks keep it real. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, Kevin. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders magazine, private member only events and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code podcast20 to receive 20% off a $100 a year subscription. Hit the link in the show notes, enter in coupon code podcast20 to receive access to all of Real Leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real.